Hello everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Risby, hello, uh, and uh, joining me via the miracle of satellite technology is the spy who loved me, Ed Davis, how the devil are you sir? Yes, I'm very, very well, I'm enjoying the fact that I have probably the best Bond theme tune. Hmm, yeah, uh, it was a good one, and but it was like a really bad Bond film, wasn't it? Yeah, it's not, there's a whole slew of them of that era that are terrible, um, I think... Mm. That's probably the one that has the most disproportionate quality between film and theme tune. Yeah, I mean the theme theme tunes have always been kind of good, kind of maybe perhaps towards the later ones. I can't really remember the, the last really good one. Uh, mm, I guess Goldeneye was pretty good. The score. Mm, do you know who wrote? Do you know who wrote Goldeneye? The film, the score, or the film? The 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 song that Tina Turner sings. Uh it's. Was it Bono and the Edge? It certainly was. Yeah. Because hmm. I remember watching, I caught a bit of it on TV in a hotel a little while ago, and uh, that very much surprised me, as did the fact that the score to that film is abhorrent. It's absolutely awful. I didn't remember it being as terrible as it is, but it's a really awful mix of trying to do Bond kind of strings and 90s techno, <laughs> hmm. and it is unlistenable now. Yeah. We kind of because they announced the new guy uh, Sam Smith is doing it, isn't he? The new one. Yeah, um, but I don't really know who he is. Uh, he is if he's the guy I'm thinking of, and I think he is. He's the guy who sang that song "Stay with Me," which is pretty much the same as "Stand My Ground" by Tom Petty, to the extent that he had to give him a songwriting credit. Oh dear! Uh, and it's uh, like it's not immediately apparent, but they demonstrated that if you sped his song up ever so slightly, it's exactly the same kind of rhythm and stuff to the extent mm. that he pretty much just owned up to it and said, yeah, I think I may have been somewhat inspired by this song. Well, you you weren't just inspired by it. You did it and just slowed it down slightly. Yeah. It's <laughs> That's a, what it sounded like to me. It's very much a vanilla ice situation. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, all that kind of Bond nonsense aside, uh, we've got a kind of podcast to do. Um, but before we kind of get into this week's topic, uh, a brief, a very brief rundown uh, of what's been going on in the news this week. Um, it's been a quite a slow one, so the news will pick out. It's going to be pretty dull, I warn you now. But top of my list of things was the news that they're remaking Roadhouse. We know that. That's kind of been in the works for ages, and you know Roadhouse is fun. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need a remake. But they're going to cast Ronda Rousey in the lead. And when I saw that news, I was like, actually, if you're going to remake it, you may as well just go the whole hog and do it completely differently because I'd much rather that than you just try and make Roadhouse again. Yeah, or if they just try and recast whoever's playing the Swayze part in the Point Break remake. Mm. The guy who looks sort of like him, but I don't know who he is and I don't think anyone else will. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's like that's a surprisingly interesting and bold choice, which is not something that a lot of remakes of uh, films from that era tend to have. Hmm. Let's not kind of forget that it's a film about a Zen bouncer who wears chinos above his belly button, and a um, famous bouncer at that. Yes, a uh, yeah, who then rips a dude's heart out with his bare hands. <laughs> um, uh, it's uh, that film is one kind of one kind of crazy tonal roller coaster, but it's kind of delirious fun. 
But I think that's a kind of a good shout. Like, you know, uh, I know that there'll be the usual kind of crybabies saying that it's some kind of feminazi plot to over- overtake and ruin everything that men hold dear to themselves. But Jesus fucking Christ, it's Roadhouse. Uh, that's just remind the feminazi thing has just reminded me of the, a great joke that my friend uh, Neil made on Facebook this week, which was that he didn't know how the na- the the male felt about referring to someone as a feminazi because they hate feminists, but historically <laughs> they're quite fond of Nazis. So it's uh, yeah, that's that's a term that uh, I find horrible, but that made me laugh. But yeah, I think um, mm. in terms of the remake. The thing I'm really interested in now is who are they going to cast as the Sam Elliott role? And my hope would be someone like Sigourney Weaver. Mm. I think uh, maybe Paula Malcolmson. Is that the, the woman who plays Calamity Jane in Deadwood? Yeah, uh, no, that's Robin Weigart. Let's cast her. Yes. But as Calamity Jane, essentially. <laughs> Same role. I'm, I'm kind of lacking imagination. Just go around shouting, um, get fucked! <laughs> yeah. I'd love that. I'd watch it, you know. But I think Ronda Rousey is perfect in the basis that I know very little about her. I've never seen her act. But I have seen her punch people in the face before, and she seems to be quite comfortable doing that. Yeah, I think if she can win a fight in, like, 30 seconds, what it was that she won her last fight, she's got very little problem at being convincing as an action hero. So Mm. uh, I think certainly in terms of uh, being able to throw a punch, she's a very strong choice. Yeah, absolutely. The other bit of news I saw this week, which involves scrapping, is the kind of inevitable matchup that we're going to see between King Kong and Godzilla, because King Kong's got a new film coming out. Uh, I think it's called Skull Island, and I think Legendary, the, the team behind the film, gonna, are shopping it around at Warner Brothers, which means it's going to be at the same studio, which means inevitably we're going to get King Kong versus Godzilla, but we just don't need that, do we? No, I was listening to a podcast this week about the history of universal horror, which was very, very good. And I, and I was listening to it, and they obviously talk about the, when they would match up all the various uh, monsters in the Universal stable, you know, Dracula showing up and with Frankenstein and the Wolfman and things like that. And I was trying to wonder why those kind of films are very charming, and yet modern-day attempts to do those sort of things always come off as really crass. And I mm. kind of think it's because those films had a kind of, I don't know, a kind of a, a carnival barker hucksterism to them. It's like they're people there just being like, yeah, we're going to put on a show, come and see it, and give us your money. And they're not they're not kind of hiding the fact they're doing this to make a quick buck. Whereas mm. with the um, with things like the idea of them matching up Godzilla and King Kong, you know, it was a decision that involved an awful lot of spreadsheets. Mm. Yeah. And, like, where's the interest in that kind of... They tried so hard to shoehorn human interest into the Godzilla remake, the kind of gritty, serious, d- deadly serious reboot that Gareth Evans slash Edwards did. So, you know, where's the human interest where you take the humans out and replace it with a giant ape? Mm. And even an ape that's not really that big compared to Godzilla. No, it'd be like just punching him in the shin. <laughs> punching him in the shin until he gets evaporated by his laser breath. Mm. It's it's yeah. not an even matchup. It's not. There'd have to be loads of like King Kongs. Now that yeah. actually does sound like fun. Mm, I'd watch it. I'd watch it for maybe 20 minutes. Like the last 20 minutes, much like the best part of Godzilla was the last half hour or so. Yeah, exactly. Can you think of any more imaginative like matchups that perhaps would be more fun to watch? I thought of one just now. Uh, I'll be honest, it's based purely on phonetics. 
but Django versus Rango, <laughs> I would watch because they're kind of both. They're like, I mean, Rango is definitely a western, and yep. Django is definitely a western. I'd watch the two of them facing off. Yeah, uh, I would like to see the Mummy versus uh, Mommy, the <laughs> Xavier Dolan film. Yeah. It's just it's just like a, a film shot in a one by one ratio. Kid kind of going around Quebec, and then just Imhotep just kind of shows up and wanders around for a bit. Hmm. Yeah, I could I could see that because didn't Universal aren't they trying to make some kind of big shared universe? Of yeah, them, they're classic monsters. Yeah, they're 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 trying to. They attempted sort of to start it with Dracula Untold, which didn't do very well, so may not be part of it anymore. But they've definitely said that there's going to be like a Frankenstein origin movie and a a Wolfman one, assuming they're not also starring Benicio del Toro because the last one didn't do too well. And then mm. at some point they'll all cross over. But yeah, again, it just seems like something that a decision that was made by people who are just kind of looking through their spreadsheets or just talking to their lawyers saying, what do we own? Mm. What what can we just mash together? As opposed to kind of people thinking, hey, this would be fun and it might make us some money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What about, got this one, Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> and is it Dustin Hoffman versus Michael Richards? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like a really neurotic guy trying to find out where all the props are in the scene so he kind of understands his character and his motivations versus a dude doing a really racist dive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, I'd watch it for maybe 20 minutes. But yeah, I'd just be waiting for Godzilla to show up. Or you could but do yeah. it as a documentary, which is about Cosmo Kramer, the real Cosmo Kramer, trying to get cast on Seinfeld and about kind of what a nightmare he was. Mm, what about Kramer versus Wayne Kramer from the MC5? <laughs> I mean, we're we're kind of slipping into the realms of fantasy now. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, now we are. <laughs> yeah, now that now this is getting ridiculous. Anyway, other, uh, another good bit of news is that, and it kind of feeds into what we're going to talk about this week, is that AMC, uh, the good people at AMC, they make television and and some bloody good television too. They've been developing Preacher under the watchful eye of uh, is it um, Seth Rogen? Is and is he doing it with Evan Goldberg? Yeah, they they, they have definitely written it, and I. Think they may have co-directed the pilot, but they, they do come, they come as a pair, don't they? Those two. Um, yeah, they have done a pilot which no one's seen, but AMC have seen it and they liked it and they've ordered it to series, which is pretty encouraging news. It is, especially because it co-stars uh, Joe Gilgan of This Is England fame, which mm. is uh, something I'm very pleased with because I think, as I've said before, it means that someone I've had a drink with will be in an AMC show, which to date yeah. hasn't happened uh, yeah. in other configurations. Mm, this is England 90 started tonight on British television. Uh, I look forward to seeing that at some point. <laughs> I haven't, haven't had a chance to even check out 88 yet. But 86 mm. was great, if grim. Yeah, yeah. And I worked on that. So, you know, while we're in the, while we're in the kind of uh, the name dropping bit, I worked on that. I had a lovely time. I met Joe Gilgan. He was very nice. He had made a point of going around. I, was, I just worked on like the rehearsal stuff. And he made a point of going around and shaking everyone's hand, no matter who they were, even if they were just like, well, I was probably the least important person in the room. I was just kind of filming it. And he shook my hand and he said, I just wanted to come over and say hello because I didn't want you to think I was a twat. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was, one of the, that was kind of really funny because I was like, I didn't think you were a twat at all, but thank you. That's fine. But yeah, nice guy. And uh, we're glad that our close friend Joe Gilgan uh, <laughs> is going to be in Preacher. 
that's uh, jolly good news all round. It is a segue of sorts because we're going to talk about television. Now, we decided kind of a while ago when we were talking about what kind of general things we were going to do this year in terms of episodes. It does surprise many people that we think that far ahead of what we're doing, but we do sometimes. And we kind of talked about wanting to revisit some of the, the early episodes we did because uh, things change. Maybe our opinions change on certain things and maybe the kind of climate or the culture changes around things. And one thing that we thought would be really fun to revisit uh, would be television, which I think was our third or fourth episode we did. Yeah, right? yeah, it's the the fourth episode, yeah. Fifth if you count the pilot where we had a different name before we changed it because we realised someone else already had that name. Yeah, we don't we don't count that. That's, that's not canon. Uh, that's now Legends. It's uh, a little callback <laughs> to Star Wars for you. <laughs> television would be fun because, like, at the time when we recorded the television episode, there was an awful lot to talk about. And uh, I think to this day it still remains one of our kind of most played episodes and kind of always one I always kind of fondly remember doing. But that was kind of three and a half, four years ago. And it seems ridiculous to think it, but so much has changed since then. Yeah, I mean, last time when we recorded it, because I, I went back and re-listened to that episode in preparation for this, and in, in addition to being reminded that I recorded it the day after I had literally been the sickest I've ever been in my life. So if anyone mm. wants to go back and listen to that and s- listen to what it sounds like when I am seemingly on the verge of death, because <laughs> I sound terrible <laughs> in, that, in that episode, uh, but as we say all the time, but very sexy as a result mm. of the, the ravages of, of disease on my vocal cords. We were kind of talking about things that had, were kind of happening, and we, we basically said, I think streaming's going to be big. Mm. Like It was like, like that sort of tone, maybe not exact same words, but we were saying that you know uh, online streaming services producing original content is going to be the next big kind of explosion of television. And you're talking about things like the fragmentation of the audience and, uh, and these, these kind of trends that in the years... Uh, since we recorded that episode have kind of proliferated just far more than I think we could have imagined at the time. Mm. I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we talked a lot at the start about how, you know, the way people absorb and take in television has changed. Uh, In the olden days, used to watch an episode a week on television at a scheduled time. Uh, And then when we recorded the last episode, I was talking about a thing that some of our listeners may remember, their DVD box sets where you had to actually put a disc in your machine and you could watch all the episodes, you know, once, but you had to change it over every now and again. And now, 2015, watching it on DVD in a box set seems a thoroughly antiquated way of enjoying television. Yeah, now that we're in the age where people are constantly talking about the death of physical media, which Mm. was kind of something that people were rumbling about in 2012, but, you know, it wasn't exactly to the case where we are now where it's just gone into a complete death spiral pretty much. Um, and, and where the idea of just streaming something on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon is the norm, um, and the idea of watching, the idea of appointment television of actually watching something at the time it's scheduled, or of going out and buying a DVD seems uh, hopelessly antiquated. Mm. You do a little kind of show of hands. Anyone listening at home, put your hand up right now if you have watched a show on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something and you own it on DVD, but you've watched it on Amazon Prime because you didn't want to have to get up and change the disc over. My hand is up right now, Ed. As is mine. I, um, I do that surprisingly often. Yeah, because I've kind of I sold. I've sold pretty much all my... I've kind of kept my HBO stuff because that's not streaming over here till kind of HBO Now arrives or HBO Go, whatever it's called. 
but everything else I've just sold because it's it's there when you need it. Like they're not getting rid of it. It's always going to be on there. And you know, I didn't need nine DVDs full of Peep Show because it's on mm. every streaming service going. <laughs> Especially now, I, 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 mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but Four OD has changed over here. It's now uh, it used to be just kind of like a catch up service for Channel Four stuff, but now it's their entire library. That's everything they've done. So well, pretty much. But yeah, you can go right back and and kind of dip into anything. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I think that change had happened. I had noticed that change the last time I was over because I just kind of was looking for stuff to kind of stream when I was waiting for my flight. And then, oh, it's like, go look at what's been on 4D recently. And it's literally everything. <laughs> it's like mm. all there. And it's a huge back catalogue of, you know, all these great shows over the years. Um, mm. But yeah, so that, that definitely seems to be in the same way that most technology seems to be moving towards cloud-based technology like everyone all networks over here that have their own streaming services or they try and make deals with hulu and things like that it's it's very much seen as the future of the medium even though people are still really fuzzy on how exactly they're going to you know make a huge amount of money from it Mm. speaking of the cloud and going slightly off topic for a second i signed up for apple music last week and i've never had a streaming service before for music and it is honestly been in my house this week. Like your granddad has just discovered it. <laughs> I've just been shouting my wife every five minutes. Guess what I've got? <laughs> Even though like it's taken me a week or so to get my head around the fact that I can have anything I want that's ever been recorded. Uh, I will still shout my wife and tell her that I've downloaded Manson's Attack of the Grey Lantern because I can, but I'm still really excited by it because the novelty is too big and I never had Spotify or anything like that. And I'm just dead excited. Yeah, I, I signed up for it a few weeks ago, and the main thing for me is, as someone who used to listen to Spotify at work, but just couldn't be asked paying the premium rate to not have adverts, it's very nice to listen to a whole album and then not have like an advert for you know window cleaners kind of come on in the middle of a track. Yeah, yeah, you don't want that. Like, anyway. like the worst possible skits on a rap album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, it would really kind of bother me on on like like some people at work listen to Spotify, but with the adverts in, mm. listen to like a really nice gentle folk album, but then there'd be an advert for a techno album in the middle <laughs> of it. It would just be really disruptive and kind of weird. And that's kind of that's kind of uh, been like kind of largely absent from video streaming services, haven't it? Kind of adverts. Uh, it's something that happens a lot on Hulu. Hulu. Oh, does it? Yeah, Hulu has. Uh, they they have only just in the last. I think two weeks they've only just introduced the option to pay slightly more to have no adverts, which right. people, I think people felt they should have had for a while. Cause the whole thing with Hulu was there was the free Hulu service where you could watch basically anything that was up that week. Uh, and then if you paid for Hulu plus you got, you know, back catalogs of seasons, you get their exclusive shows and you would get like the uh, criterion, uh, collection on there because they've got like 900 films that are in some way related to the Criterion collection mm. and uh, and then people for a long time people basically said but why can I do I have adverts if I'm paying you like $10 a month for it and now they have a, like I think it's $12 a month to go for um, the ad, ad 3 option which I haven't I I personally haven't signed up for yet because I think I don't really care because <laughs> it's it's fewer adverts than you get on TV anyway but but it's yeah it's that only now have they kind of caught up to the Amazon and the Netflix option where they where the adverts don't kind of break in. Mm. Dragging this conversation into the realm of current affairs, we had an Apple launch this week, a big Apple launch. We had an Apple Pencil, 
revealed, which is something I thought was a joke, first of all, like most people <laughs> did, but no, it's real. But we all, the Apple TV has had a massive kind of reboot, and they talked there about the future of television being apps uh, and changing the way people watch stuff, which, you know, if I think about how I interact with television, I very rarely watch my television. I have mm. kind of like a, you know, cable service or whatever. I have, you know... 200 channels or something at my disposal. I very rarely watch any of them. If I watch television, I come home and I turn on my PlayStation or hook up the laptop and I go to Netflix or Amazon Prime and I watch something. Now, is you know, is that kind of now catching on in the sense that, like, is uh, is Apple right? Is Apple predicting the way we're going to change watching television or is this a kind of... is this uh, and the newfangled thing that isn't going to quite catch on. Is it going to be you don't you know skip through channels to see what's on, you fire up an app and you pick up where you left off with the last thing you're watching? I think it is then trying to kind of capitalise on the whole thing of Roku boxes and things like that now where people have a thing that allows them to kind of just go through various apps on their TV, but to try and, uh, you know... Because I think Roku is uh, maybe the industry leader in that regard i think it's or, or at the very least it's kind of got more of a established reputation for quality than apple tv has because i think apple tv can be a little bit um or in the past has, has not been as efficient so i think it's them trying to say that this thing that's already slightly popular with a lot of with a small group of people is going to be the future in the same way that you know the i the i uh, pod wasn't like the first mp3 but it came out and they pushed it to say this is the future so they kind of go into a market that already kind of exists and then just kind of flood it with their stuff so that they can hopefully kind of become the uh the dominant force which has worked for them quite a lot in the last 10 years so i can it seems to be they're following that strategy again mm. it seems the way to go if the producers of the shows uh, and the television that we consume continue to develop the way they have been you know, it's not like BBC or HBO or whoever make a television show anymore. Like we talked about before, Amazon have made some fantastic television in the last two years. And that's fucking Amazon. Mm. We got like PlayStation Network have made shows this year. Like with Netflix losing a lot of their films, they're going to be putting way more into original content. And if it seems that if uh, the, the traditional methods of production and distribution are changing, it seems perfectly fair and reasonable that the method of exhibition should change yeah and it also i think seems to be following the patterns of how people consume tv because now there's less of a sense when i say people i mean people of like our generation and maybe slightly older as opposed to people who you know sort of people in their 50s and 60s and 70s who are used to watching tv at certain times so the younger generations we're getting to the point where we just watch stuff regardless of where it's on, because we have these kind of things like Hulu and Netflix where it's, it's kind of almost aggregating all of the good content and then putting it into a single place. Mm. So the idea of having ways that you can just kind of scroll through things or you can just search for a show and then it shows up in like one of like 50 different apps relating to different TV channels or different networks, that's probably seems more to be where the future will be for, for TV shows than the old kind of scrolling through seeing what's on or just kind of recording something off TV and then watching it later. Do you think that is inevitable with different producers making shows 
um, and all those producers perhaps being subscription-based rather than dependent on commercials and corporate sponsorship, do you think that that is bound to attract more creative talent on the proviso that they may possibly be given more freedom? I mean, yeah, that seems to be, that certainly seems would seem to be an extension of what's already happening because one of the things that I think kind of spurred us to talk about this now, other than the fact that we're at the start of the TV season, was um, John Landgraft, the uh, president of FX, talking at the TCAs about how there is, in his words, too much TV. And that mm. we, are, we are what people have started referring to as we're in the age of peak TV, where in the last four or five years, the number of scripted TV shows on American television have risen from about 200 or so in 2011 to about 400 this year. And how basically what's happened is the idea of kind of mass culture TV shows, with the exception of things like Walking Dead and Empire, which are kind of the two shows that still get huge viewers, the the days when a show needs to get like 10, 15 million viewers just to stay on the air are over. Like the idea that something like The X-Files, which was a show that got huge viewing figures by modern standards, would be far and away the biggest show on television if it got the numbers that it got back in the 90s. Um, was really kind of still seen as a cult show, mm. even though it was getting like 20, 30 million viewers. Um, mm. Those days have far gone, and it's kind of splintered off. And what that basically means is that now the the level of success needed for a show to stay on the air is drastically lower. So a show like, with at the time, in our last episode, we talked about something like Community, which is a show that at its best only ever got 9 million viewers and then was kind of eked out for five seasons up three or four million viewers or uh, more recently something like Hannibal which was a show that was in kind of these graveyard time slots and did kind of like minuscule viewing but because it was really cheap for NBC and because it had a passionate fan base it was able to eke out three seasons which is like two more than anyone thought it was going to get because it was a very strange show that that's kind of the world we're in where people will pretty much just try anything to try and get viewers to kind of stay and watch the ads. Mm. And talking about show creators being able to perhaps have more freedom, I've kind of noticed that having these different outlets for stuff uh, perhaps gives producers an opportunity to try something they perhaps wouldn't or they'd find difficult to do. In film, for example, we've seen uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's everywhere. It's bloody rife. Um, we did a whole podcast about it, um, but they've kind of branched out into TV. They've got to deal with Netflix. They're going to have a load of shows going on Netflix of kind of varying components of this huge universe they've got built up. But they've kind of had quite a lot of success with a little show called Daredevil uh, that's come out this year that I've been watching. I know you've seen some of it too, and it's very good. But it's noticeably different to other stuff that takes place in the same universe in the fact that it is pretty fucking dark. And I remember when, on this very show, you said, hey, you should watch uh, Daredevil. It's dark and kind of a bit violent. And I kind of thought, well, it'll probably be violent for a superhero film. Mm. As in, people will probably growl, look kind of pensively out of a window, uh, and then maybe punch someone in the face. But you know, it doesn't take long to get a few episodes in, and you're like, oh, that dude's head's just come off. Yeah. Oh, that's because <laughs> he was kind of smashing it in a car door. And that's something that Marvel probably could get away with in the cinema but it's way less of a risk for them to do it on tv 
Yeah, and also in terms of that particular scene in Daredevil, the whole aesthetic of that show is geared towards presenting it as a kind of very gritty and not realistic, but, you know, kind of a a slightly more grounded approach to this kind of world where, um, you know, you have Norse gods flying around. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the idea that Matt Murdock has slightly enhanced abilities, but mainly he's just punching people in the face. And Mm. that's pretty much it. (laughs) And and so that's kind of the the tone that the show takes. It kind of goes on from that and they kind of present it as essentially just a show about a guy beating people up in kind of very uh, inventively staged ways. And that is, and it's very interesting to see how the not having to have like a $90 million opening weekend changes that. Like they're Mm. not worried about... Uh, necessarily making the money back because the show's already been made and it, like it's just about getting the viewers really uh, which mm. is kind of shifts the the idea of what is acceptable within that universe and it's been pretty successful i think they're going for a second season aren't they and and why not because it's been fairly critically well received and people seem to like it because people subscribe to netflix and watch it yeah, and they're also going ahead with uh, the Jessica Jones TV series, which uh, I don't be... know what that is. Can you fill Can you fill me in on that? Because I've I've seen the trailer for it, uh, but I don't know who she is or what she does. She sounds like a relatively normal person. <laughs> yeah, she's basically just a detective that happens to exist in the same realm as Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Um, the main thing that's basically all I know that, and that it stars Kristen Ritter, who I'm a big fan of from her work in Don't Trust to Be in Apartment Twenty Three, and also her brief run on Breaking Bad. Uh, and she's also ah. really good in uh, Listen Up, Philip from last year as well. Yes, so she's someone who I like a lot. So I, I'm very interested to see her, you know, anchor a series. Mm. It just seemed to come up because I don't really follow comics or anything. So it just came to come a bit like from left field, where like you're in a world of like the Avengers and Daredevil and X Men, and then there's like Jessica Jones, just like <laughs> a superhero called like Dave Smith or something. <laughs> it's just doesn't, uh, yeah. But fair enough, it sounds interesting. I'll watch it probably. Do you think that, like, you know, we talk about viewing figures, um, just to touch briefly on that. Ratings like that have kind of always been wildly inconsistent. They're always massive guesses because we just don't know. I mean, certainly in Britain, we don't know. There is, there are like a cross-section of the population has a little box on the top of their television and it monitors what they watch and then they extrapolate the figures from there uh, of what they'd see. It doesn't take into account multiple people watching things like in a pub, for example. It's always estimates. And I always thought it was quite kind of dicey to base the future and fate of a television show on what is essentially an educated guess. Do you think that things like Netflix, where I'm pretty sure you can find out exactly how many times you've watched uh, things have been watched, will change things like that? Uh, Yeah, although one of the things that's interesting about that is they have been very cagey about how popular their shows are. Mm-hmm. Which again was something that John Langraff said a few years ago, basically called them out on the bullshit of not telling people how many people actually watch their stuff. Um, because, you know, there's no real way to gauge how successful these things are apart from how much uh, press they get on Twitter, you know, mm-hmm. how many mentions and how much traffic they get. So there are kind of ways that, because that way you can say, okay, yeah, Orange is the New Black is very popular because millions of people are talking about it on Twitter. But, that's there's no kind of uh, precise metrics to offer for that but that definitely seems like a way more uh accurate way of doing it because uh, i i've been uh, re-watching a bunch of old episodes of 
Charlie Brooker's screen wipe and he did an episode where he talked about the kind of little set-top boxes uh, monitoring people watching it and he's, he pointed out that one of the problems with it is that if one person goes out to take a piss then they have to mark that on the box and that means that as far as they're concerned 10,000 people all went and had a piss at the same time wow. so it's kind of a system that is deeply flawed and you know the Netflix model makes more sense and you know you can definitely see you know that's the reason why they picked up Arrested Development because they saw shit loads of people watching Arrested Development so if we make more episodes of this more people will sign up for our service and they'll all watch it or Hulu picking up the Mindy project you know where they say this show does really well for us if we create more episodes then that kind of helps us boost our brand Mm. but until there's actual accountability then it's kind of hard for anyone else to judge what counts as a success Mm. in terms of the peak tv thing i was fascinated to see just how kind of sharply netflix's original production has kind of skyrocketed so i was kind of a bit behind on tv this year i will not be afraid to admit that so i kind of was like what should i catch up on and i kind of loaded up my netflix and i was like well i'll watch dead and it has the old netflix original kind of button in the top left hand corner but then there's so many other shows that have got that that have just come out this year um stuff like bloodline season two or three of house of cards and there's so many other shows that have kind of popped up and i'm just like hang on these are guys who you know two years ago were making their first show and now you know it's not inconceivable given the the changes that are happening to their deal on films that they will be kind of more than half original content by you know two three four five years in the future yeah, the days when the only Netflix original was Lilyhammer seemed like a you know a lifetime away. Um, it does. It seems quaint, quaint <laughs> and antiquated, as we yeah. just said. Yeah, that is a. Um, yeah, I think you saying that you're behind on TV. I don't think you're alone. I think everyone feels like they're behind on TV now because, mm. like, I don't watch. I, I think I watch a fair amount of TV, not as much as you know people who write about TV. But even people who write about TV say they feel like they're missing out on like half of the good shows because for every show you're watching it seems like there are about 20 others that people say oh yeah you really should watch this like i haven't watched bloodline i hear it's very good i haven't watched halt Halt and catch fire which people say got really good in its second season you know there's you just have to kind of pick and choose and then eventually eventually hope that i don't know you spend seven months in hospital or something and you can catch up you know fingers crossed here's yeah or uh you know, you just go for a prolonged period of, un- period of unemployment. You know, it's like there's just so many of these shows that exist out there. And it really does that. That's kind of when people talk about peak TV, that is what they're talking about is that uh, because the audience is fractured and shows don't need that many viewers to exist anymore. You get shows that are kind of super specific and niche um, that can exist and can last for a very long time because they do just about well enough to survive. And so the days when there were maybe five consensus great shows on television and everyone could keep up with them, like everyone could keep up with Seinfeld and The Simpsons and The Sopranos and things like that. Now it just feels like there's like 40 or 50 great shows on at any one time and you have to just pick and choose which ones to watch. And that's Mm. great for the culture in general. But I think for individual viewers, it still feels like, God, you know, when am I going to get the time to watch you know mr robot well i watched that but you know or or, um or hand of god or something like that it's interesting that 
even back when we recorded this episode, you would very regularly see articles in newspapers that would be, this is the next big American TV show. This is your next box set you need to kind of invest in. Mm. But now you just can't say that because there's just too much. There's just too much going on. And you said something to me last week when we said we were going to do this one. You said if there's ever an argument for it being peak TV, watch the show documentary now. Because in your words, it was niche as fuck. And it it, uh, basically kind of confirms your argument that in this kind of uh, climate that we have everything for everybody there is something for people who like really strange long kind of unusual incredibly funny but spot-on parodies of uh critically revered documentaries yeah so that's kind of like a niche of a niche of a niche it's like Mm. within the niche of comedy fans you have your alternative comedy fans within your alternative comedy fans you have people who like documentaries and in that you have people who are really familiar with grey gardens and the thin blue line you know, it's like, it's so specific, but it's been picked up for three seasons. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, and part of that is the fact that the people involved are, you know, big names. You've got your Bill Hader and Fred Armisen and Seth Meyers and people like John Mulaney writing for it. But And Helen Mirren fronting it. Yeah, as well, That's which is bizarre. <laughs> it's just the strangest thing, but so good. Um, but yeah, so that, that's, that's definitely a show where you look at that and you think, there is no way this show exists 10 years ago. Like, these are ideas that, that, like, to me, the way that show came together, I don't know if this is true, but this is what it seems like, is that these must have been just a series of sketch ideas that didn't make it onto Saturday Night Live. Because Lord Michaels just said, why the hell would anyone watch a sketch that's a, like a breakdown of Nanook of the North? <laughs> you know, this That's just so weird and specific. But when you expand that out to a half hour as an anthology show, it makes a lot more sense because you can really kind of dig into the nature of documentary filmmaking and explore it almost kind of thematically as well as comedically. And Mm. yeah, that's just something that doesn't exist 10 years ago. Mm. And it's something that kind of relies on uh, that kind of deep intensive love and knowledge of the subject that it's Mm. kind of exposing that, you know, it's the kind of thing that Spaced was doing in tiny little fragments, but this is an entire half hour a week show dedicated to that. And anyone who's seen the film Grey Gardens and watches the first episode of Documentary Now will be relatively blown away by just how spot on it is. I won't ruin the twist, which I kind of didn't really see coming, but then after you finish things, it's blindingly obvious that the real film didn't go that way. <laughs> um, um, and it's astonishingly well executed. And uh, yeah, I've only seen, I've, not, I've seen the Nook of the North episode the other day, which was just fucking far out (laughs) it's pretty trippy again but none of them feel like they're kind of outstaying their welcome like an extended sketch would but i think it's because they're done with such uh, care and and kind of attention to detail yeah and and also i think it's it's kind of points to something that the uh critic uh emily nussbaum wrote on twitter yesterday which was television a handful of great dramas and about three thousand terrific comedies which definitely seems like something that's changed over the last three years since we did the first episode. Because I think then we were, you know, Breaking Bad was just about to end. Mad Men was at its peak. We, were, we definitely felt like, you know, this is a great age for drama, for serialised drama. And in the years since then, the number and the quality and the variety of American comedies um, on television, in stark contrast to American uh, film comedy, which is pretty much a wasteland, mm-hmm. it has become this incredibly fertile 
land where like anyone who has a podcast has a show <laughs> pretty much um and it's like you you get stuff that is like doctor documentary now or review where you get to see andy daly completely ruin his life on a weekly basis which is uh great and just completely out there and strange uh the most recent episode involved him i think it was the most recent or maybe two weeks ago involved him getting stranded on a raft for three months uh <laughs> which you know just kind of takes it into a very kind of extreme and bizarre direction but a very funny one uh again that's a show that is utterly fantastic and you can't imagine it getting commissioned uh you know 10 years ago let alone getting to two seasons Mm. a lot of this kind of comedy boom is in no small part down to comedy central Mm. um who have really kind of mined a rich vein of of kind of form haven't they yeah, largely driven by their current kind of president, whose name I forget, but I'll look it up because he's the guy who directed the film Semi Pro with uh, Will Ferrell before he became their kind of president. Um, but yeah, he's basically gone out. His his approach, as I've seen it described, was that he just essentially would go to people who had a strong vision and then said, "Do what you want." Kent Altman is his name. Uh, Kent Altman just basically goes out to people who he thinks have a strong comedic voice and then say to them what do you want to do and that's what you get you get your keys and peel your um inside amy schumer review uh another period you know all this stuff where you just have people who are incredibly funny people who have a distinct point of view on the world and you know they are just given free reign to do whatever they want and that has been reflected in uh, the emmys this year where three of their shows are nominated for uh, best sketch variety show a category which was only invented this year because scott orkerman pointed out to the emmys people yeah there's a lot of really great sketch shows you know Mm. maybe we should have a category for them yeah um is broad city comedy central as well yes that's another one i knew there was a big one i was forgetting but yeah broad city is a an utterly amazing show which again you just go to people who are out there creating a show on the internet for themselves and then say this is fantastic can you make a tv version of this is drunk history Comedy Central as well. Yes, that's that's the third. The three shows they have nominated for an Emmy this year for sketch are Inside Amy Schumer, Key and Peele, and Drunk History. I have to say that Drunk History, we're talking about peak television niche. Um, <laughs> that is very very niche. And again, a film, a TV show that was kind of internet series of shorts, was it? Yeah, um, Funny or Die. Yeah, um, and it's kind of the show is produced by will ferrell and, and uh adam mckay's uh, production company is it gary sanchez yeah uh, pictures or whatever that is an example of a tv show that if you described it to someone or even if you described it to us uh four years ago when we sat down to do our first tv podcast we would think you were quite mad that um, <laughs> they would you know a person would go from from state to state find a comedian get them incredibly drunk and get them to recount an episode from real history uh, the best they could um and then get in some cases a list hollywood stars in costume to lip sync the drug drunk person and reenact the the uh, events in question but it's fucking brilliant somehow yeah and it, i think it's also indicative you see a lot of this now is that you get a lot of networks going to people who make stuff online and then trying to turn that into a tv show whereas before I think you maybe would look at someone and maybe take them because they have a following and try and build a show around them. Whereas this is more a case of them going, you have a thing that works. We want to pay you money to make it work for us on TV. 
And so you see that with Drunk History, you see that with Broad City, you see that with um, the forthcoming High Maintenance, which was a show that was on Vimeo and is going to be on HBO next year. Mm. You know, it's something that has made one of the kind of bigger leaps. Because again, who the fuck knows that Vimeo have original programming? <laughs> and it's going, making the leap from there to HBO, which is like crazy. Mm, but uh, Rob Hubel and Paul Shearer have just done something on Vimeo, I think. That special yeah. where they drive around on a bus. Yeah, like a stand-up special on a glass bus, which I haven't <laughs> watched yet, but sounds incredible. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of a weird thing that that's happened. And all these shows that are kind of you know thoroughly odd and kind of esoteric and, and kind of weird, they still kind of... You know, they're just finding the way out and you know they're great because this is a kind of huge period of creativity and all the weird stuff's coming out of the woodwork and it's kind of awesome you also get things like bojack horseman where it's a show built on the strangest premise well kind of not necessarily the strangest premise because there are lots of shows about anthropomorphic animals but the idea of doing a show that is very keenly about depression <laughs> make it using kind of anthropomorphized animals but also make it deeply kind of affecting and weird created by someone who has never worked in TV before. Mm. Like a guy who just went in with a pitch and Netflix said, this sounds great. Can you make a show of this? And like, again, that's the sort of thing where the door, the doors have been kicked open. And because I think because of the, the fertility of the comedy scene in America, the alt comedy scene in particular around LA through things like the upright citizen brigade theater, where, people who are comedically inclined can go for training and to network and to kind of, you know, develop their skills and kind of take them out either as actors or writers in a way that also you've got with um, Second City in the past, but it's like kind of uh, UCB seems to be Second City on steroids because mm. they have so many theatres. Um, you do kind of get the sense that these people are just kind of there milling around and they're working together and there's this very kind of... Um, collegiate culture where everyone works on everyone's own stuff and they will just kind of spend two hours on a podcast kind of playing funny characters or whatever um and then they'll eventually get a tv show and cast their friends and stuff that all of these people are kind of supporting each other and getting their ideas out there in a way that uh you know has really kind of come about the perfect time where you have these hundreds if not thousands of people who have really interesting ideas existing in a time where all these networks and production companies are just kind of scrabbling for any idea that they can make to try and get out there and to be heard above the noise. Mm, mm. In terms of something we talked about on the old show, uh, we talked about perhaps how it was changing when we kind of first touched upon it, but how it was perhaps still necessarily, not necessarily viewed as a good thing to be on television in terms of a career you kind of did television and then maybe you went on to movies, but you didn't kind of do movies and move to television. It was seen as kind of a step down in a lot of senses. But we said at the time of our last one that it was changing and it was kind of people were following where the writing was going. And uh, yeah, we saw uh, Walter Murch speak at DocFest a couple of years ago and he said that cinema had ceded the intellectual middle ground to television, which is probably true. You've got... um you know, the best writers, the best directors and networks that will support those people in creative times working on television right now in a way that they still are in film, but perhaps not as widely. And we're actually seeing that kind of moving much further away from the idea that television is a step down 
uh, on the basis that last year we had Matthew McConaughey standing on stage at the Oscars accepting his Best Actor Oscar when later that night he was starring in True Detective on HBO. We have got kind of a position now where Oscar Isaac is fast becoming one of the biggest stars in the world. Uh, he is on an HBO show right now. The Rock is one of the biggest action stars in the world. He's on an HBO show right now. You've got Lord and Miller, the you know directors we absolutely love, can pretty much have their pick of projects. They're doing the new Star Wars anthology film. Not afraid to kind of direct the the you know the season openers for Brooklyn Nine Nine or Last Man on Earth. We've got Nicole Kidman now. She's going to star in Top of the Lake. We've got Anne Hathaway moving over to do a show. It's really kind of becoming way more fluid now. Yeah, it, it it definitely like when we last talked, there was a sense. I think we basically said it's less shameful to do TV, and now people are eager to do TV. You know, mm-hmm. I think the, the the biggest example of that in the, the since we did the first episode was Steven Soderbergh aban- abandoning cinema, apart from you know shooting and editing and producing Magic Mike XXL, to go and work in TV. You know, he did uh, be- Behind the Candelabra, he did. The Nick, which he you know shot and wrote and edited, and is doing a whole second season of that where he's doing the same thing. You know, he's someone who essentially said, you know, film doesn't provide me with the resources and the freedom that I need to make the sort of things I want to make. So I'm going to go where people will do that for me. And again, somewhere like Cinemax, where is a, a a channel which only started doing original series in the kind of the very recent past. Uh, they're always looking for a big name that they can bring on or someone who they can provide legit that someone that can provide them with legitimacy and they really seem to hope to find that with uh, Soderbergh and the Nick uh, which I haven't seen because you know there's too much television (laughs) but you know that's that you definitely get that sense that people who perhaps feel frustrated that they can't do the work they want to do in film look at television and think there is an outlet for me hmm yeah, and it's kind of unusual that um, I think True Detective might have set the tone for the idea that one director can do an entire series. That doesn't it doesn't have to be, you know, a show like kind of overseen by a showrunner bringing in directors for hire. I always remember listening to um, I think was it Mike Figgis used to direct episodes of The Sopranos, and he said in some ways it was very liberating because you just turn up, you do your work, and you go home, and you don't see it until it comes on the television. But, you know, that's not really kind of washing anymore because I'm pretty sure that Steven Soderbergh doesn't do that. I'm pretty sure that uh, Kerry Fukunaga didn't do that on True Detective. Yeah, I mean, and also someone like Louis C.K., who's obviously working on a much lower budget than True Detective. True Detective feels like a watershed in terms of a show of that scale. Because, like, if you look at something like Spaced, which Edgar Wright shot every episode of, or, or, or Louis... Their shows are very small scale and very small budget, but something like that, which was, you know, kind of a very grand and kind of, uh, you know, huge undertaking to have one director, uh, you know, at that end and it not be like a traditional miniseries. Uh, it's kind of uh, unprecedented in some ways. Mm. Yeah, it really is kind of like the, the lines between film and TV are kind of perhaps blurred. And I think that that using the example of Lord and Miller, um, which is, you know, is is that is it a generational thing? Have they kind of grown up now with TV kind of always being pretty decent and it not being such a big deal to think, well, I'll do one thing, I'll do the other, it doesn't really matter. It, it certainly feels that way. It certainly feels as if 
except in the case of someone like a Scorsese who will show up and shoot a pilot or whatever. But that's mm-hmm. more just kind of because they want to lend that they have a, a vested interest in making a show a hit. So they'll kind of help out that uh, the, 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 the uh, it's very permeable between television and film and the internet. You know, all these people just of the people who are in the sort of twenties and thirties who, or, or early forties people who maybe have come up an age where everyone has a web series. Like everyone has a, uh, a podcast. Everyone is constantly creating stuff because they want to create and maybe, traditional outlets don't provide them with that situation now that uh you know film has become seems to be becoming more closed off and it's a case where you can either make you can be like a joe swanberg who makes like 70 films a year for 10 quid you know you make stuff like really you make stuff really low budget because you can have the freedom there if you can work within low budgets or you make these like massive huge films the idea of television where seemingly every budget level is accounted for, you know, from something like Louis, which is like made very, very cheaply for television all the way up to your game of Thrones and your house of cards, where it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to make that those shows and everything in between is accounted for. So there seems to be a level, a a way for people to realize their ambitions at pretty much every level, as long as, you know, they have the ideas and they have, the creativity and i think for all these people who have spent like a decade or show or so exercising that creativity online or on stage they are kind of seizing the opportunity to realize that on a bigger canvas and they're really kind of going with it mm. yeah absolutely we talk about there being too much television or perhaps reaching peak tv time for us to put our money where our mouth is ed and um kind of kind of let the people at home uh, know what they should be watching out of all the stuff that we haven't seen um, <laughs> and that we're struggling to keep up with. I will kind of uh, offer Broad City, we just mentioned it as a show that you definitely should watch. Um, it is absolutely fucking hilarious. I think you pitched it to me as like the nearest thing you'd get to an American version of Peep Show. And yes. It's kind of that, and I can definitely see that. But it's got the most peculiar energy provided by the two uh, leads and the kind of creative driving force of that show. And I would kind of signal people to the episode in which there is a power cut caused by a tropical storm. And uh, through a series of contrivances, the two lead characters end up housing all the people on their floor uh, in to have a kind of like candle lit let's all stay around and kind of see this storm out till tomorrow. But one of the girls really fancies the guy next door and he's there, but she has to do a poo and (laughs) she does it and the toilet doesn't flush. So the other housemate is in charge of hiding the poo. (laughs) And what follows (laughs) is like 22 minutes of the funniest TV I've seen in a long time. That episode is a mark of genius. Yeah. that, That is one of the best shows on television, regardless of, you know, comedy drama, that show is unbelievably great and uh, i'm so pleased that it exists mm. what what would you would you throw into the mix as being uh, indispensable right now uh, i would throw in the fx show the americans which i am a very big fan of and i think is uh, many people speculate that that was the show when uh, john langruff was talking about there being too much tv he was essentially saying that there's so much good tv that a lot of really great shows get Uh, overshadowed by the good shows that everyone's trying to kind of filter through and the americans is kind of his baby a show about a couple of uh, soviet spies living in america in the 1980s who um, are 
spies, but they're also, you know, they have kids, they have this life, this facade that they are trying to maintain. And the show explores the idea of kind of Soviet Cold War paranoia, but it's really about the ways in which this relationship changes and how their marriage is affected by the secrets they're holding and, and exploring the idea of different permutations of family and things like that. And over the three seasons that it's been so far, it has been a kind of brilliantly realised examination of this particular family and also having some amazing action sets pieces and some images on television that are really hard to stomach. In particular, this most recent season had a corpse being folded into a suitcase, which uh, had a lot of some of the most horrifying sound design I've heard on television in a long time. Uh, And one scene in which uh, one character had to remove the chipped tooth from another character's mouth which was horrifying but it's it's a a brilliant show uh that doesn't get enough attention but but is uh, utterly fantastic i'll always bang the drum for archer mm. uh, which is a very consistent show uh not one that kind of many people would be pushing forward as classic and i, I kind of don't think it is but it's it, it, in terms of it being very consistent and being very kind of uh, kind of arch, I don't know. <laughs> That's kind of a, a silly kind of pun to make on Archer, but it is uh, not what you'd kind of expect. I'd also uh, suggest people immediately watch Veep, mm. um, kind of HBO's kind of banner comedy, I guess they've got right now with Curb off the air. Yeah, that one, that one's fantastic. Particularly if you uh, wondered what the thick of it would be like with slightly better looking people. <laughs> um, yep, but, and even uh, more imaginative swearing somehow. Yeah, uh, it's actually funny you mentioned Archer because uh, that was my recommendation on the previous episode when, was you had, when you hadn't seen it. Like I was trying to pitch you on Archer and you didn't seem entirely sold on it. So that's definitely one of the big changes of the last three years. Uh, on, a, on a similar uh, HBO comedy tip, uh, I just the last day kind of torn through Silicon Valley, which I think is, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Mike Judge, his stuff like Office Space and Idiocracy, I think are very, very good film comedies. Uh, King of the Hill is one of the all-time great sitcoms. And Silicon Valley, as as someone who kind of works in the tech industry, I guess, although I feel weird referring to myself as that, it captures a lot of that mood of of that world very, very well, kind of the aspirational bullshit of it all. But um, it's also, you know, a really funny comedy about these very distinct characters and it also has two of the best examples i've seen of a a character type that mike judge seems to write very well which is kind of the alpha loser someone (laughs) who has nothing going for them but is super comfortable with that and still thinks they're kind of fantastic um classic example this with the character of dale in king of the hill uh and in um he has two great ones in uh, silicon valley in the form of ehrlich played by tj miller who uh, made me laugh a lot with his line, his delivery of the line, Jesus, why would you stab a plumber? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is just very, very funny. And uh, Gilfoyle, played by Martin Starr, who has all of the kind of awkward body language of, you know, all of Martin Starr's other roles, but is a Satanist and is supremely confident in that fact and has such uh, amused me greatly. Mm. And is Canadian. Yeah. Uh, and is uh, yeah, the illegal immigrant. Of the crew, uh, I yeah, I, I too watched Silicon Valley, and well, I'm really surprised about how good it is. Mm. And what I when I say surprised, it's because everyone keeps telling me the second season is way better. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of look forward to getting into that. We could be here all day talking about films 
uh, sorry, talking about television that we kind of want to recommend, but we've got some actual recommendations to do with kind of our weekly short reverse short recommends feature. I'm going to stay on a television tip and I'm going to recommend a book about television. Uh, and I know Ed's read it because he lent it to me. Uh, it's a little book called Live from New York, which is by Tom Shales and James Andrew Miller. And it is a kind of exhausting, uh, sorry, exhaustive would probably be a better word, uh, oral history uh, of Saturday Night Live and it's every bit as interesting as that pitch makes it sound because it kind of doesn't really leave many stones unturned and it is a kind of a fascinating look at a show that has weathered and kind of endured all the changes that have gone through television and is you know somehow continuing through this golden age and all the changes in distribution and everything and doesn't seem to show any signs of stopping unless Lord Michaels dies. And even then, I think they probably have at least a few more years of momentum behind it. Yeah, quite possibly. But that's a great book. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic uh, book. Uh, I'm going to recommend a film that I watched last week. It's a film that I've been looking forward to for most of the year. And I was getting to the point where I was thinking, God, unless I get a screener of this, I'm not going to see it. And then I looked it up and realised it was actually street. It was actually available to rent from iTunes. So uh, I rented Alex Ross Perry's new film, Queen of Earth. Uh, Alex Ross Perry directed uh, one of our favourite film, films from last year, Listen mm-hmm. Up, Philip, mm-hmm. which I, I think I said at the time uh, was a film where at one point it all becomes just essentially a mini film entirely about Elizabeth Moss's character and how I really wished he would do a whole film just about her. Uh, and apparently he listened to me, you know, my wish reached him and he did make a film entirely about uh, Elizabeth Moss. He made a kind of uh, extremely dark and uncomfortable Polanski-esque dark comedy thriller about uh, a woman played by Elizabeth Moss who has a emotional breakdown after the end of a relationship and decides that she's going to go and spend a kind of indeterminate amount of time staying with her friend at a cabin in the woods played by uh, Catherine Waterston, most recently seen or probably most notably seen in uh, Inherent Vice. Well, hang uh, on, Ed. Does does Catherine Waterston play the cabin in the woods? Uh, or no. is she the friend? <laughs> Because that uh, would make her incredibly versatile, but a little wooden. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, also really good in the extreme weather. <laughs> yeah. And it's just essentially about the exploring their relationship with flashbacks to previous summers where they stayed at this, this kind of isolated lake and how their relationship has changed over time and, and also examining Elizabeth Moss's character's kind of breakdown in kind of these more expressionistic ways, you know, kind of pushing at the question of how much of what she's seeing is real and not really offering much of an answer to that. And it does it in a way that's very, very compelling. Uh, and also features a small role by uh, Patrick Fugit from uh, Almost Famous, Most Famously, and also uh, Gone Girl, who apparently is reinventing himself as a bit bit player in deeply uncomfortable films. Mm, yeah, yeah. I look forward to seeing that one. Uh, whenever it may land and considering that we named listen up philip as one of our best films last year and it only came out about a month ago over here wow. um yeah it might, might take a while to drop yeah so anyway that was tv we were kind of a bit long this week but i think you all agree that um you probably couldn't cut a second out of that it was uh, <laughs> it's all gold so uh, a lot's changed and we'll probably do another episode in four years when kind of television episodes will be kind of downloaded directly into our eyeballs um, and we won't miss a single minute of a single show because we won't be able to escape our overlords of Netflix and Amazon uh, <laughs> who will rule everything we do. Now's the time for me to say the stuff I normally say at the end of an episode, like 
subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Player FM. Did I get the name right? Yes. Wicked. And find our podcast at our website, which is srspodcast.podbean.com. You can find all the links to the Twitter, the Facebook, and all the subscription on there. We'll be back next week. When what are we talking about? Ed? Is it the, the the winter preview next next week? Uh, no, next week we're talking about Betty Davis. Oh, that'll be a good one. I better watch some Betty Davis films. As Quick sharp. <laughs> that'll be a good one. But until then, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.